Welcome to our second large group of the semester. Uh, If you were with us last week, you know that we are traveling through Exodus uh, as a part of a series that we've called Being Known and Living Free. And as I was thinking about uh, this evening's passage, which is mostly Exodus 2, but we actually are taking the last verse of uh, chapter 1 with it, uh, I was thinking a lot about a conversation that I had with a student Uh, My first semester here at UWM. Don't try and guess who it is. You won't guess it. Uh, This young man had a grandfather that he had lost. And uh, my first semester here, we didn't know each other very well, but I asked him to get coffee. And he said, actually, yeah, it's like I texted him probably every week for the first like seven weeks of the semester. And like in the seventh week, had not responded to me and then said yes. Uh, And the week before, he had lost his grandfather and sits down and basically tells me the story of uh, he and his family. And it was essentially this, that like his grandfather had been the only person that had been like a steady person in his life since he could remember. Uh, Mother was a, like a drug addict. Father wasn't really in the picture. Um, Like grandmother died when he was really little. Grandfather had raised him and like, it's his first year of college and like grandfather passes away, tells me his grandfather had like gone to church every week, good person, pillar of the community, like all that good stuff. And yet I remember him looking at me and saying like, I just don't understand how God could take him from me. You know, like I don't understand how God could leave me in this position without my grandfather. And I think about this passage and I think about like some of you guys are going through deaths of your own in your families, you know, sicknesses, you might have breakups, job setbacks, uh, things that in your life you would label as suffering, as pain, as very hard things that you have dealt with. And I think that this passage really is answering a question that we all have in the midst of those things. It's this, where's God in the midst of that suffering, right? Where is God in the midst of suffering If you ever wanted an answer, right, to the problem of evil, right, how could a good God exist in such a sin-filled world, right, in an evil world, this is it. So let's read uh, from Exodus 1, 22 and chapter 2. It says this, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast in the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child... She hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of uh, bulrushes and daubed it with butamen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying, and she took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. 
one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. He sat down by a well. Now, the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to, to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And when they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Let's pray. Uh, oh God, we simply ask that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, remember our big question uh, this evening is, where is God in the midst of suffering? And we're going to start by looking at verse 22 of chapter 1. The rest of the time we'll be in, we'll be in chapter 2. But uh, verse 22 of chapter 1 uh, communicates a couple things. Uh, last week we talked about, you know, Pharaoh's plot to kill the Egyptians, or sorry, to kill the Hebrew people because they were blossoming in number. Lots of, you know, uh, Israelite births, Hebrews growing in number, and he's afraid they're going to take over. And he, first he tries uh, to get, you know, uh, just to work them to death so that they don't uh, want to procreate anymore. And then he tries to tell the Hebrew midwives to kill the you know, babies to make it look like an accident. And when neither of those works, he's moved on to plan C, which is not so discreet. He just tells everybody in Egypt, all of his people, if you see a Hebrew baby, throw it in the Nile, right? Not so discreet. Uh, this is where we pick up on the story is that things have gone from, you know, not so good to bad to worse to like unthinkable. And immediately following this, like we're told three distinct stories as, you know, the origin of Moses unfolds as God raises up an answer to chapter one. And we we get the birth story, uh, his coming to identify with the Israelites over the Egyptians, and then God readying him to return and lead them out of Egypt. Uh, And I I say those three stories, and I'm going to point out a couple things about them uh, because they're noteworthy. Uh, as we before we get to the the last like summary paragraph, look at me first at verse two. Look at me at verse two. With all of Egypt watching, right? Uh, there's some strange things that happen in this story that like uh, I think point to the fact that God's fingertips are maybe a little bit uh, on it, right? The fact that with all of Egypt watching here in verse two, 
The mother is able to hide Moses for three months, right? Uh, and we know that she's able to do this, and it's not easy because the word for hide, penhu uh, in, the, in the Hebrew, I'm definitely butchering that. Don't ask your Jewish friends whether or not I said that right. But the, the word that's used there is actually for treasuring and protecting something of great value. So like the way you would hide a treasure, this isn't like uh, the way you would just like, I don't know, cover up a piece of bad art, right? Or like a, you know, conceal something. It's not the same as like concealing. It's like burying. She like buried Moses and made sure that no one could find him because she treasured him. And then in verse four, uh, we see that his sister stood at a distance trying to find out what was going to happen to him. And uh, this is like, as opposed to other like ancient Near Eastern birth narratives where there's a baby that's left out, uh, exposed to the elements. It's actually a common practice if you didn't want a baby in the ancient world. What you would do is you'd have the child and then you would just leave them out in the street exposed. Uh, It was kind of a way of saying like, whatever becomes of him, like it's up to God, right? Uh, Him or her. Um, Pretty pretty gruesome, uh, to be honest. But... uh, we know that this is out of care, right? The, the daughter, after it's done, watches to see what will happen, what will be done to him. In other words, right, uh, the narrator is cluing us into something is going to happen to Moses, right? Meaning that there's, there is an agent in the story uh, that is just out of frame, <laughs> right? Verses five and six, uh, then the... You know, think about this irony that the narrator sets off. The very Nile River that we just read in 28, right? Uh, sorry, yeah, 28. Yeah, 22, sorry. That you read in verse 1, or sorry, chapter 1 of verse 22, right? The very Nile River that's supposed to drown all the, like all the Hebrew uh, male babies is actually the very... Th- like vehicle that God uses to deliver his people by sparing Moses and putting him into the arms of the daughter of the king of Egypt, right? Like the person who is going to be the chief enemy of God's people, he uses to bring about like the salvation of his people, right? To get Moses into her hand so that he is not oppressed like the other Israelites, uh, verses 7 through 9, uh, Moses' sister, right, just so happens to be there when this happens. It ensures that his mother is able to nurse him so that he grows up identifying uh, with the Hebrew people. And she's so cunning that she gets her mom to get paid to do what she would have done had Moses just been able to grow up normally, right? Again, a little tongue-in-cheek of like, not only are you, not only going to have you raise my child, but I'm going to have you pay me to do it. Uh, especially these people who are enslaved, right? If you really think about like the fact that uh, how much oppression the Hebrews have like endured at this point, like if you're reading this, you're supposed to go like, yeah, that's right. And you're going to pay me for my time. You know, like it's, it's kind of a, it's definitely a jab at them. And this whole thing sets the narrative for the second part of, of verses 11 through 12, right? Because Moses is raised by his own mom and then given over, to uh, the daughter, he knows, right? He knows where his ultimate family loyalty lies. It sets him on a, you know, this is why in this second part of the passage, it says that, um, you know, just before verse 12, 
that uh, it was, uh, or sorry, verse 11, right? It was one of his people, right? Uh, Moses identifies with the Hebrew people over the Egyptians. And so uh, in verse 12, we're told that he kills an Egyptian and just like buries the body in the sand. Um, Probably shouldn't like smile about that, but it's like some straight up, I don't know if y'all watch Ozark or like any other like Breaking Bad, but like this is like, you know what I mean? This is like that stuff, and it's here in the Bible. Uh, Moses, you know, can't stand to see his people being oppressed. And, like, for the record, it's worth noting, um, not good. Like, yes, the people are being oppressed, but, like, uh, he's getting – and some guy's getting beat. But, like, Moses is not the arbitrator of all things right and good. You can't just, like, kill a man because you don't like what he's doing. Um, but he does. <laughs> and uh, – and so he buries him. Uh, just another point of God picking somebody who's not all the way perfect, right? Uh, he has to flee uh, because it's found out. In verse 14, uh, we know that Moses gets afraid uh, that the murder is going to get out and that he's going to be in trouble. Uh, and if, I, I want to make clear, though, from verse 15 that uh, Moses doesn't flee because of his fellow Israelites. Like, one way to read this is that, like, he, you know, he broke up this fight between these two Hebrew men, and then, like, they were like, oh, you're going you're gonna to kill us or whatever, and then Moses was afraid of them. But just to be clear, it says he's afraid of the thing being known. He's not, he's not afraid of the conversation that he has with these two men or the guy, you know, giving him a little lip, right? He's afraid of the Pharaoh finding out, and then when he does, that's what makes him have to leave, Right? It's not that his adversary is anybody on the Hebrew side of things. Right? Uh, one guy giving him lip is not enough to make him run away. What makes him run away is the fact that he's definitely going to die if Pharaoh finds him. And, and the, the reality is as he flees at the end of here, like we, we should assume that that should be the end of Israel's salvation. He's fly, fled out of Egypt. He's not coming back. Uh, he's a wanted man now. But what, what happens? Moses just happens to sit down at the very well where some rough herdsmen have been continually harassing some of the priests of Midian's daughters, right? They're trying to water their flock. And uh, given the fact that the dad is going to ask if you're back home early, probably what they have done is they've had to wait until those guys leave for the day or they go home or whatever, or they, they let up and then they're able to go draw their water later. But they can actually get their work done sooner and they come home early and... Uh, you know, Moses is able to gain the approval of the priests and is evil, even able to marry one of his daughters, eat at their table, give, you know, as the priest says, like, you should give him some bread, uh, right? They're eating together. And uh, this man, right, Moses, who has never truly belonged anywhere, right? It's worth noting that what happens in this, you know, third section of the story, this final section of the story is that, you know, as he's been an alien in Egypt, living with a royal family that is not his own, amidst a people who, like, who are not living in their land either, who are owned by another uh, entity, he is now feasting with a family that has welcomed him. Right? He has a wife and eventually a son and the approval of you know, a father figure. And this best explains what happens in verse 22. Right? Moses has a son, names him Gershom, which literally means stranger there uh, in the, there is T-H-E-R-E. He's a stranger there in the Hebrew. The writer of Exodus, right, not wanting to miss exactly why Moses does this, he tells us that, the na- that he named his son, 
you know, this name, Gershom, meaning stranger there, as a testimony of Moses' own journey. He has been a sojourner in a foreign land, right? Notice that he doesn't say he is a so like I am a sojourner, um, right? He doesn't say I am a sojourner in a foreign land. I have been, it's in past tense, past perfect. What that means is that it has ongoing ramifications. I have been, but I am no longer, meaning now I'm home. I have been a stranger in a foreign land, but I've tasted what it feels like to be home, right? If you think about it, that means having experienced the grace of family and what it is like to be free and love and provided for, right? We should not be surprised that God uses this man, this man who has tasted freedom and family to go back and deliver his own family who have been aliens in a foreign land themselves, Right? Where is the God? Where is God in the midst of suffering? Right? That was our big question. The the thing that this whole story says is that He's at work. Right? God is at work. All of these are not just random occurrences, right? Like, what are the odds that you know the mother would put him in the pitch and the the finder would find him in the fleeing and the finding a family just the right well, you know, having to stand up for a Hebrew, like getting him to a juxtaposition, like All of these things get Moses to this point. In chapter 3, God is going to call him from that land back into Egypt. Though God isn't physically present in the story yet, it's painfully obvious to the reader that God is working overtime in this story. Uh, I had to get braces whenever I was in middle school. I don't know how many of you guys had to get braces when you were in middle school. Yes, yes, been there. Um, Before I could get them, though, I had to get four teeth pulled, uh, like four, like adult, not like baby teeth that I wouldn't lose, like four adult molars, uh, as a nine-year-old child, uh, all my adult teeth came in really early and I had to get them pulled, uh, so that my mouth could make room for the braces to like do their work. And, uh, I, I remember like, I, I actually still vividly remember screaming at my parents not to like do this. Like, please don't, like, please don't take me to the dentist. Like, please don't. Like, I really don't want to get my teeth, like, yanked out of my head. And they were like, you have to do it. And even, like, like physically, my dad had to grab me and, like, pull me into the dentist's office while I was, like, holding, I mean, like, comic style, like, holding on to the doorway, like, no, I don't want to do it. Don't make me do it. Uh, they gave me drugs, and I, you know, basically was out. It didn't matter, right? Um, but here's the deal, right? My parents had a plan. The truth is my parents had a plan for my braces and, and it meant that I had to get my teeth pulled. And yeah, it was going to be like a kind of like crazy, like traumatic, painful experience. Like uh, I like I'd say I was out a little bit out, but I still remember like the pliers and like the like the tugging and st- like just yikes. Uh, what I'm saying is this, that like in that same way that my parents knew that this like temporary pain, that the the temporary like hardship that I was going to go through. Well, they knew that that was worth it. So also, the Bible as a whole, and it's specifically this passage, it tells us that God is executing a plan that we, can all, we can't always understand at the time that it's happening. But it's good. But it's a good plan. What this means at the very least is that like, this passage is screaming out, like, just because you can't envision a good reason why God is putting you through the thing he puts you through, doesn't mean that there isn't a good reason. Just because you can't envision one doesn't mean that there isn't a good reason. And in fact, if you can envision a God great enough, 
to put an end to your suffering, there's also a God great enough to have a plan that you can't comprehend. Right? If he's big enough to be able to stop your suffering, then he's actually big enough to be able to allow it to happen so that it serves his purposes. We find a God like this in the scriptures, a big God who is working in all things, even really hard things, even pharaohs who tell everybody to throw their children in the Nile. It makes room for a a savior like Moses for for the Hebrew people. Just because we don't have the benefit of knowing how our stories turn out, like, you know, the end of Exodus doesn't mean that God isn't as much at work in our own stories. So, I do think, um, and I think there's some comfort in that, that God has a plan and that he's working on it. But I think it's worth pressing this point a little bit further uh, in, in this sense. Like, would just a good plan, I think you should ask yourself, would just God having a good plan, like, and working toward that end, would that in and of itself make suffering good? Uh you know, does it make suffering good just that God, you know, like, oh, it all works out in the end. You know, Moses ends up being able to find a family and then it can go back and all this stuff. But like, you know, is God the, you know, the puppet master just kind of pulling strings? Um, I remember at my, uh, both my dad and my mom's funeral, it's happened to me at every funeral I've ever been at really where I'm the one grieving. Someone inevitably always comes up to you and says, you know, Everything happens for a reason. And I want so badly when they do that to just punch them in the face and be like, everything happens for a reason. You know, like, you know what I'm saying? Just happened. And I'll let you figure out what that was. Um, Right. It's it's, everything happens for a reason. Uh, Other one, they, you know, they take a good look at your, uh, your person in the casket and they say something like, you know, he's in a better place. Well, yeah, but he's dead. You know, like the truth is at the end of the day, that does not make me feel any better because he's not here. Right. Um, Like we say these trite things. Right. And, And I think the reason that those feel so hollow and so trite in the moment is because a plan by itself is is not comfort. Right. Uh, A plan by itself, it turns God into some sort of puppet master. It turns him into if you've ever seen the Queen's Gambit. Right. He's nothing more than a than a God who stares up at the ceiling and like envisions chess moves. And it's your life that gets that gets turned upside down as he does that. But like, what does he care? You're just a piece in a machine. Right. We're just pieces in a game. And if it ends well. Right. uh, I would say this, even if it ends well. Right. I'm not sure I would want a relationship with a God like that. Truth be told, like if if God is just some, you know, big puppet master, like, and he's just doing the way things just got to be like, that doesn't provide me a lot of solace or a lot of trust in him. Um, How do I know that he really cares or is going to, is going to carry through the good plan? Um, And also, why is he putting me through it? Right? Well, okay. uh, That brings us to a second point. How else is it that God turns suffering into good? Um, Look at me at verses 23 through 35. We're just going to look at the very end of this passage. Uh, with our final moments here. Here we get a summary of both chapters one and two, right? If you remember from chapter one, we looked at this last week, it told us of the plight of Abraham's grandsons, right? His great-grandchildren, you know, Isaac and Jacob and and those grandchildren, how they'd come to Egypt to become enslaved. But here we have the great climax of that tragedy, that when the people pray, 
by crying out to God, he hears them, that their prayers come up to him, their cries come up to God, and he hears them. And uh, specifically in verse 24, uh, we're told that not only does they, do they come up to God, but he hears their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob, right? This covenant that he would not only grow them into a great nation, which he has already delivered upon, right? Uh, a large number of people, but also that he would bless them. There's a second part that he hasn't come through on yet. And in verse 24, uh, this word remembered. Uh, worth noting that um, it's the Hebrew word zakan. And it's not, ref- it's not just recollection. When we see this word it's actually more like uh, application that uh, God is going to do something about. Like when you, when you rem- like we can remember things like when, you're pa- when your mom like asks you to take out the trash or roommates like, hey, can you do the dishes or whatever? You can be like, oh, yeah. And then you like go back to playing Xbox or whatever and ignore it, right? Like that's us remembering when we're talking about God remembering one, he never forgot about the dishes in the first place. It's not like God can forget. He knows everything all the time. What remembering here means is that uh, God has decided it is time to, to come through on his covenant. That he has decided that it's time to apply uh, not just numbers, but also the blessing end of the covenant. And then in verse 25, uh, notice this, that the word know here, uh, verse 25, God saw the people and God knew. Uh, the Hebrew word yadah. It's not just awareness, right? Again, it's not just that like God had forgotten and now he's like, oh yeah, now I, I know how people are doing because they, they prayed or whatever. It is worth noting that like praying works, that like when they cry out for help, God does actually hear their prayers. Um, not saying that he like wouldn't have done it if not, right? But in the way that the story is told, like God acts on people like crying out to him. It's worth saying, note about prayer. Uh, but what this is not just awareness, right? It's a closeness, right? A concern. In fact, the same word is the word that's used multiple times in the Old Testament uh, to describe the act of uh, sex between uh, a man and a woman. Uh, that uh, to know in this sense is to, like, to be very intimate, to be very close uh, to someone when you know somebody uh, in this way. And uh, that doesn't mean, for the record, that like, this isn't like a sexual <laughs> Uh, way that God knows the people, right? But it is saying that God is intimately acquainted with what's going on, right? He is near to it. How is it, right? Uh, or, or that, and that brings us to our second answer to our question, where is God in the midst of suffering, right? It's not just that he's at work, it's that he knows. So he knows it. He knows it well. Uh, C.S. Lewis writes, uh, this one scene, um, I don't know if y'all have ever read the Chronicles of Narnia, but in the first book, The Magician's Nephew, uh, there's this boy named Diggory who is asked by Aslan, this big giant lion, uh, to do a task for him. And Diggory has a mother who is very, very ill. I think it was with cancer, but I can't remember. And just before setting about the task that Aslan has given for him, he like thinks to himself and he's like, Maybe I could strike a deal with him. Like I could say like, well, I'll do this if you'll make my mom better. And then he realizes like Aslan's a huge lion and doesn't seem like the kind of person who will make deals with people. Uh, and so instead he like just squeaks out this. This is what Lewis writes. But please, um, please, won't you 
Can't you give me something that will cure my mother? Diggory said. Up till then, Diggory had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. Right? He had noticed he couldn't just tell the lion what he was going to do. He'd been looking at how big he was. Now in his despair, he looked up at its face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own. And, wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. My son, my son, said Aslan, I know, grief is great. The point that Lewis is making uh, is the same as this passage. It's that God doesn't simply stand far off and pull the strings. Yes, that would give some amount of comfort in the sense that like, it's all going to work out, but it wouldn't really make us feel good about him, about the string puller. The point that Lewis is making and that this passage is making is that God knows that he is concerned, he cares, he's moved by your pain and suffering. He's not indifferent, he's not up there just saying it's just the way it's got to be, right? He hears the cries for help. Um, and we see it over and over again in John 11, when Jesus learns that his friend Lazarus has died. He is literally just three verses later going to raise him from the dead. He's just going to walk a little ways and then call him out of the tomb. But that does not stop him from weeping at the news. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. And, but it serves as a reminder that God, again, is not a puppet master, that he's not just saying you just got to deal with it. He loves his creation. In fact, that weeping is nothing but a glimpse, right? It's like the tip of an iceberg. This, this stuff is the tip of an iceberg or the motivation that God has that will require him to send Jesus to the cross, to die, to become a man, right? That God loves his creation so much it's not even just that he saw and he knows. It's that he knows because he's lived it and been there. He knows even at this point, I know what this will all end in. You know? God is invested in the Israelite story. Uh, and it says that he remembers his promises and knows their pain. And how much more so does he know our pain? How much more so does he know, can we trust that he has our best in mind when he has sent us Jesus? It's not trite. It's not a platitude. It's the truth. It's the truth, and it, costs, and it costs God so dearly to be concerned like that with our welfare. How much more so should we turn to him in our suffering? How much more so can we trust him with our lives and the little things? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I do.